Weimar Academy Choir. If I was nervous about this today, you took my nervousness away. Praise the Lord and thank you very much. Happy Sabbath, ASI family, and welcome to Sabbath School. We are uh, going to study today a title, Worship, Song, and Praise. This is lesson number six, and uh, the theme of the quarter, of course, is worship. But before we get started, I'd like to begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we bless your name. We bless your name. We give you honor. We give you praise. You are the life, the truth, the way. We bless your name. As we open your word today, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit descend on me and on all that are gathered here that the things that you want us to learn and take away will be applied to our lives. I pray that Jesus Christ be lifted up and that all that we do will be about him and for him. For Jesus' sake, amen. As I mentioned, the title of the lesson is Worship, Song, and Praise. The first angel's message says that I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. The everlasting gospel was so good, it was good for every single person on planet earth. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and the seas and the springs of water. We see this angel that has the everlasting gospel to preach, and that everlasting gospel is so powerful and in fact so beautiful that it is worthy of worship of the Creator God. Worship is a central theme of the Bible. From Genesis through Deuteronomy to Revelation, we see this theme of worship. And today, in our history, it is still of vital importance. As a matter of fact, Song and music has been a vital part of worship throughout scripture. We see in the book of Job recorded, I believe, I don't know, perhaps one of the first songs. And that was the song at creation. We are told that the morning stars sang together. I can't even imagine what it would mean to have stars singing together. But it says that the morning stars sang together and that the sons of God shouted for joy. Uh, as you look throughout Israel's history, music has been a central part of their worship, be it uh, the Passover, Pentecost, um, the Feast of Tabernacles, there was always a song associated with their worship. When Israel saw the Red Sea part, they never saw such a sight. Water standing on end, and they broke into song. In fact, some of the words include things such as, the Lord is my strength and my song, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? When David finally got the ark back from where it had been taken, uh, David wrote a song for that occasion. And uh, the Lord himself at the Last Supper had a song before they went out. So music is vital. We are told by Paul in the book of Ephesians that we are to admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Worship, song, and praise. That's what we're talking about today. 
Well, there's some questions that we want to address. What does it mean to worship? How do we worship? Why do we worship? And what role does music play in worship? What songs shall we sing? And how does one distinguish between true worship and false worship? Each of those questions, I think, could take the entire time. And so we are just going to address some of those questions today. And to do that, I want to look at three songs in the book of Revelation. Three songs in the book of Revelation. The first song is in Revelation chapter 4. If you could take your Bibles and turn over there very quickly. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. The background to this is that John was taken in vision by the Spirit into what appears to be the sanctuary in heaven, and he sees one, he describes, sitting on a throne. He describes his appearance. It's magnificent. And around that particular throne, there are 24 other thrones with 24 elders sitting on those thrones. As those, these elders are sitting on those thrones, um, John continues to look, and oh, there's a sea of glass in the middle, and uh, between that throne, there, is, there are four living creatures, and he describes these living creatures. But the important thing now, I want to start reading in verse 8. Verse 8 says, as the four living creatures, and the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Sometimes we have these songs, we call them 7-Eleven songs. This is a 14-word song repeated endlessly without rest, day or night. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give, give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We see here then that this, in this scene that 24 elders and four living creatures have only one song to sing. And that song regards creation. For some reason, they sing this song endlessly. The same song, endlessly, and that song relates to creation. And so the question is, why does creation inspire such ceaseless day and night without rest, outpouring of continuous endless song and praise and worship. I want to show you a few pictures, but let me give you a little background. Late in the summer of 1977, there was a historic mission. Two spacecraft broke free from Earth's gravity to journey to the outer edges of our solar system. Their idea was to look at the four giant planets of our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And for 13 years, they observed these, and amongst the thousands of memorable pictures 
the most stunning was recorded on February 14 of 1990. And I want to put this slide up, um, February 14, 1990. If you look there, famous photograph, that pale blue dot, the camera from Voyager 1 turned back its camera and focused on that thing between those two white lines on the screen. And that pale blue dot was Earth, planet Earth, from four billion miles away. And questions arose about that pale blue dot. Things such as, what is the meaning and significance of planet Earth? What is Earth's role in the universe? Copernicus said, that's Nicholas Copernicus said, that Earth has no preferred place in the universe. The late Carl Sagan astronomer said that our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Is it true, is it the case, that our planet is just a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark? I want to look at a few slides um, that I have here. Here you have, um, and I can't see very well from here, I guess I'll look on this side. Here we have uh, our, our solar system, the biggest one is Jupiter, then Saturn's number two, then Uranus and Neptune. The blue planet right there on the left-hand side further is our planet Earth, and then we have the rest of the planets. Next picture. I want to look at this in perspective. Now we look at our sun, and we see that Jupiter, which appeared so large, is now smaller, and Earth is down the line number five. And you see that's fairly small. Next picture, please. Now we see that if you look at Arcturus, a bigger sun, now our sun appears to be quite small, and in fact, Jupiter at this magnification is one pixel. My husband has tried to explain to me what a pixel is. I can't remember, but it's small. <laughs> Next slide. Now we have Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is the eighth largest star in our solar system. And now, at this magnification, Earth has been removed, and Jupiter is one pixel in size. As I uh, think about this, Ellen White said that our little planet Earth is to be the lesson book of the universe. That thing that disappeared off the screen is to be the lesson book of our of the, the universe. Two things I think that are important as we consider that. We don't have time today because you know something? You know you say time flies? It does. <laughs> time flies. But I'll just say this. There are 20 factors that must occur at the same time and the same place in order to have life, intelligent life, on a planet. It's easy to think of the billions of galaxies that exist and think certainly there must be other life elsewhere. But it turns out that there are 20 factors. So first of all, I want to look at two things, the habitability of the planet and the ability of those on the planet to see beyond into the cosmos. So there are 20 factors, very quickly. Water must be in liquid form. I won't tell you all 20. Let me give you a few examples. Location, location, location. The planet must be in the exact right spot in the galaxy. Next, I thought this was interesting. We are orbited by a large moon, 
The moon has a powerful gravitational pull that keeps the angle of the Earth's axis stable at 23 and a half degrees. That's no accident. In addition to that, I'm going to say something, I have no idea what I'm saying, but I read this. <laughs> we are orbited by a main sequence G2 dwarf star. In other words, that's our sun. That sun, if it, it is the mass of that sun, if it was 90% less massive, we would disappear. Excuse me, I, didn't, I said that wrong. If it were less massive as our 90% of the other stars, we would cease to, to exist. I want to show you another interesting thing on another slide. We are protected by large, giant gas planets. The slide will come soon. These are the sentinels, Jupiter and Saturn. Do you know what sentinel means? The one who stands watch. Praise the Lord, right? If we had been hit by the number of meteors that could have hit us, we would have been extinct. There was a, a, a meteor that hit Jupiter. When that meteor hit Jupiter, if it had gotten planet Earth, we would have been destroyed. The Lord set it up so that there are sentinels watching over planet Earth. Of the 20 factors then, amongst the 20 factors, water in liquid form, we have a moon that's an awesome moon. We have the right sun, that main sequence G2 dwarf star. We have a magnetic field. Earth is the only planet that has plate tectonics. The probability of those 20 factors occurring at the same time and place is one in one thousandth of a trillion. This did not happen by chance. God made the world. The second thing, Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I want to focus on the fact that it says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Location, location, location. Earth is positioned in the perfect position for discovery. Two things. The atmosphere of this planet is unique. It is transparent. It is the only planet in our galaxy that has a transparent enough atmosphere that we can see beyond into the cosmos. In addition to that, now again, I'm beyond my knowledge base. I'm a physician. But I read this. The electromagnetic spectrum is huge. What it would take for life, for plants, for animals and peoples to exist is a very tiny portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. And it so happens that our planet has just that right electromagnetic spectrum to give us a bird's eye view, a front row seat on the rest of the universe. It also turns out that we are governed, Earth and the universe, by finely tuned laws. An elegant mathematical structure, the product, I believe, of God's handiwork. We were perfectly positioned, God positioned us perfectly in this world for discovery. And what are we to discover? David says, 
In Psalms 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now that sounds like poetry, and in some sense it is. But it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Then listen to this. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. We are perfectly positioned because of our atmosphere, the electromagnetic field, to discover something. It says knowledge. So day unto day unto speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line goes out through all the earth, their words. This is creation to the end of the world. Isn't that amazing? Now, so let's go back to verse 1. Verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. What does that mean? Remember Moses. When Moses said to the Lord, show me your glory. The Lord didn't show him a bright light. There was no bright shining light. What did the Lord tell him? Show, I will show you my goodness. I will show you my goodness. And then the Lord passed by and he declared the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness. The word there is hesed in the Hebrew, and that is a love that will not let you go. The heavens declare the goodness of God, a love that will not let us go. And elsewhere, David exclaims in Psalms chapter 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? or the son of man, that you give attention to him. And David said that after he looked, he said, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? So we see the four living creatures right here in Revelation chapter 4, and those 24 elders singing 14 words endlessly because reason number one for worship, God has made a universe finely tuned and governed by precise mathematical laws to sustain life and to give us an understanding of him. We see in the heavens his glory, his goodness. Night brings an intermission to most human activity, but it has no effect on the ceaseless stream of worship and song and praise to God that issues forth from the beings of heaven. So reason number one to worship is that it's his creation. Reason number two, the second song, Revelation chapter 5. And in Revelation chapter 5, we see here that in verse 1, John again sees, he's sitting at the right hand of him, he saw sitting at the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back. And verse 2 says that a strong angel said, who is worthy to open the scroll? And there appeared to be no one. John in verse 4 was weeping because there was no one. But the elders said, do not weep, because they found someone. And then we see, down in verse 6, very important. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain. So important was the sacrificial offering of Jesus Christ, that God is represented here as being in the very act of pouring out his blood on behalf of mankind. So he sees this lamb as though he was slain, having the seven horns. Then in verse 7, he says, then he came, that's the lamb came, 
and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now we're going to go into verse 8. If you thought that in chapter 4, worship was going on, look at chapter 5, what happens. Verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Whatever was going on, this lamb invoked in them now a new song. And the new song went like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign forever. Look at verse 11. That I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and now it says the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. All of the universe is now joining in in praise and worship because now there's the lamb that was slain and redemption is worthy of incredible worship. And saying with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength. Verse 13, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every creature you can imagine was involved in saying blessing and honor and glory and power to him, be to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb forever. What an incredible picture of worship. The central act of his life, which claimed their admiration, was the shedding of his blood for the salvation of fallen men. The story of redemption then causes the whole of creation to respond in a chorus of worship and song and praise and this from all corners of the universe. Now, these are rational beings. Those beings are rational beings, and they are singing this song night and day. And what is it about the story of redemption that calls forth this new song? John chapter 12, Jesus said, John chapter 12, verse 32, that I, if I be lifted up, the text says, will draw all men. It doesn't actually say that. It says, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to myself, which includes the onlooking universe to myself. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want you to notice that. We're going to do some math in a little bit. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the power of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are, being, uh, who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We're going to do some math. My husband and I did not go to college together. I went to Walla Walla College. Walla Walla College? All right. I was a math major. My husband says I was a math major until I took a math class. I learned this. He wasn't even there. <laughs> All right, but if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. 
Does everybody know that? All right. So, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the message of the cross is the power. Hence, the gospel is the message of the cross. For that reason, he concluded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he desired to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Peter joins, and this is great, Peter joins in this chorus, and in 1 Peter he says, after telling of the salvation and the sufferings of Jesus Christ, he begins to reflect on the preaching of the gospel and makes a remarkable statement. He says that this gospel, the message of the cross, is the thing which angels desire to look into. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, the message of the cross, we have no time because I said time flies. In fact, time really flies. What we understand as Seventh-day Adventists about the cross of Jesus Christ is deeper and richer and wider and higher than any other denomination on planet Earth. To understand that, all you have to do is to go and read the Desire of Ages, the chapter on Gethsemane and on Calvary. I like to give my Sabbath school class at home assignments. I'm giving you an assignment. Go home and read the Desire of Ages. Jesus Christ, when he was on the way to the cross, was depressed. He had faced death before, and he told people, this, isn't, this is nothing, this is no big deal. So when he died, it was not the physical suffering, there's some, something great there. Ellen White says in the book Desire of Ages, Our little world is the lesson book of the universe, God's wonderful purpose of grace. The mystery of redeeming love is the theme into which angels desire to look. And it will be their study throughout the endless ages. Both the redeemed and the unfallen beings will find in the cross of Jesus Christ their science and their song. So Revelation chapter 14 verse 6 told us that this angel had the everlasting gospel. The everlasting gospel teaches us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? Galatians chapter 4 tells us that that word, Jesus Christ, came in the likeness of our flesh and tabernacled in our flesh. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He pitched his tent beside the tents of men. He tabernacled in the midst of our human encampment. The everlasting gospel also tells us that though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor. It tells us also that Jesus Christ, who though he was God, did not consider divinity something to, to be grasped hold of, but he made himself of no reputation. And he joined himself to the human race. The glory of self-sacrificing, self-renouncing love, a love that seeks not its own. John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave he didn't lend him, he gave him. Ellen White says, in Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Through the endless ages of eternity, he is linked with us, for God so loved the world that he gave. 
Reason number two to worship, the beauty of the matchless charms of Jesus Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. No wonder those four living creatures and the 24 elders and 10,000 times 10,000 and every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth worshiped him who stepped down from the throne of the universe to join himself to the inhabitants of earth, a planet which is but a speck of dust in the scheme of our galaxy, the minutest of specks in the scheme of the universe, just a pale blue dot, for God so loved the world. In the interest of time, I need to skip the third song, which is Revelation chapter 14. I do want to read a passage from Ellen White that she wrote in the Great Controversy, page 651. In this life, we can only begin to understand the wonderful theme of redemption. With our finite comprehension, we may consider most earnestly the shame and the glory, the life and the death, the justice and the mercy that meet in the cross. Yet with the utmost stretch of our mental powers, we fail to grasp its full significance. The length and breadth and depth and height of redeeming love are but dimly comprehended. Then she says, the cross of Christ will be the science and the song of the redeemed through all eternity. In Christ glorified, they will behold Christ crucified. Never will it be forgotten that he whose power created and upheld the unnumbered worlds, through the vast realms of space, the beloved of God, the majesty of heaven, he whom cherub and shining seraph delighted to adore, humbled himself to uplift fallen man, that he bore the guilt and shame of sin, and the hiding of his father's face. Till the woes of a lost world broke his heart and crushed out his life on Calvary's cross. That the maker of all worlds, the arbiter of all destinies, should lay aside his glory and humiliate himself from love to man will ever excite the wonder and adoration of the universe. Then she says, that we will break forth in rapturous song, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his most precious blood. Why do we worship? What song shall we sing? Songs that give him glory, songs of blessing and honor to him, redeem, songs of, of a selfless redeemer that lay the glory of man in the dust, songs of radical joy that tell us of his mindfulness of this pale blue dot. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.